where things stand in Georgia, and what to watch on Election Day. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If this is the first time you're joining us on the podcast, welcome, and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, we have a very special guest today. We're not just talking about our producer, Shaney B., who is also very special, but our editor-in-chief, Kevin Riley, is here to join us to talk about what's going on in Georgia right now and what we should be watching over the next few hours and days. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I am honored to be here. I know that I practically had to shame you into inviting me in front of the whole staff, but I'm, you know, I'm not above that, those kind of things. But the real reason I'm excited to be here is just because two of my favorite people on the staff who during this time I almost never get to see or talk to. I'm a religious listener to the podcast, so I feel very connected to all of you. I'm excited because Shaney B said I could meet all those interns who take the call, so I'm looking forward to that. But really, thanks for having me on. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. And it'll be fun hearing your perspective on what to watch because we're so close, you know, our nose is to the grindstone right now. We're, we've been out there with the candidates and campaigns. It'll be fun to hear what you think are the big dynamics looking from a kind of a, a higher up perch than maybe sometimes we can see because I literally just left Governor Kemp and we'll be hitting the campaign trail later on today and of course all of the election day. And I strongly feel like, Shane, in post-production, we need to add a drum roll to Kevin Riley's introduction because he deserves that. (laughs) Absolutely. And then, yes, if you're ever looking for me or Greg, we're probably either at a campaign event or taping this podcast. So you came to the right place to find us, Kevin. I I tracked you down one way or another. I found you. (laughs) And not in our cars for once, although that's the reason I was about five minutes late to the taping. Well, coming up on today's episode, we will talk all about where things stand right now and a few of the major points that we're watching on Election Day. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with the other host, Patricia Murphy, and our special guest, Editor-in-Chief, our boss's 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 boss, Kevin Riley, here to talk about... Well, where things stand in Georgia? And I've got to say, you know, our AJC UGA poll that came out a few days ago, other polls we've seen all show a similar dynamic, which is a split ticket. Republicans are very confident. They're not counting their chickens before they're hatched. But we're seeing Governor Kemp with a lead over Stacey Abrams. We're seeing some of the down ticket candidates with solid leads over their Democratic rivals. Uh, But the Senate race remains very close, neck and neck. All signs point to runoff 
we've even heard Senator Warnock basically say, hey, you know, I, I want to win this thing outright. But if it comes to that, it comes to that. Whereas Herschel Walker, his camp is exuding confidence that they might be able to get just enough votes in a wave election, if it is a wave election, to avoid that four-week runoff period. So we'll all find out shortly. But right now, that's kind of where the dynamics stand here in Georgia. Yeah. And Greg, if you talk to Republicans for long enough, you certainly hear their most positive prediction is that Governor Brian Kemp will finish by such a wide margin over 50% that he can bring Herschel Walker along with them on that ride. So in the last week or so is the first time I've heard anybody talking about the possibility that Herschel Walker could win without a runoff over uh, Raphael Warnock. Obviously, that is not the position of Democrats. And the Stacey Abrams campaign has really maintained right up until the end here that the polls of likely voters are by definition not capturing the unlikely voters that they believe are going to come out and support Stacey Abrams, particularly over issues like abortion. I think that embedded in the current turnout figures, though, shows a real soft spot for Democrats right now is the turnout among younger voters. Voters under 25 are about a quarter of the rate of voters over 55. And so if you're a party that has built your hopes on younger voters in particular, voters of color, that smaller number of young younger voters is a real problem. So they're doing all of these turnout events all over the state. And Stacey Abrams, while Governor Kemp is having a huge rally, kind of an election eve rally ahead of election day, Stacey Abrams is doing an event with people working on getting out the vote, people who are texting, calling, trying to get Democrats to make a plan, especially younger Democrats to make a plan and go out to the polls on Tuesday. Kevin, you're a veteran of Battleground, Ohio, one of the biggest swing states in the nation. So you're kind of used to these pre-election dynamics. We're not as used to this in Georgia where we have, you know, some really tight races. What's your best kind of make of the situation right now? Yeah, you're right, Greg. I I am used to it, although I don't think anyone ever gets used to the endless television ads uh, in a swing state as we're experiencing now routinely because it's just it's just exhausting. You know, you're just waiting for the day when you just get back to normal television ads again. Uh, so that, that is, uh, that sort of, you know, brought me back to the days in Ohio when it, when it was a swing state. The, the thing that strikes me about what's going on is um, it, it just seems like the Republicans have so much momentum. All the conversations are about what's possible for them. You know, as Patricia mentioned, the idea that the governor could, could avoid the runoff and get well, well over 50%. And what does that mean for Herschel Walker? To me, um, and then the argument that the Abrams campaign is making about, uh, we know, we know, we do a lot of polling, as you know, and, and really spend a lot of time analyzing it and spend a lot of time making sure people understand how we've done it, what's good about it, and maybe what, what are the flaws are in it and what it can tell you and what it can't. So there's so much data out there, so much going on that points to good things for Republicans but the Abrams campaign has gone after that one thing, right? Well, you can't know who might, which new voters might show up, right? Mm-hmm. And could they swing? Could they swing the race? So, to me, that is what's striking about this: is we really, uh, when we look back to 2018, and, and Stacey Abrams ran this incredible campaign that got so much national attention, and, and she developed so many uh, fans. And now all of a sudden she's in a race that it looks like she's just not going to win. I get that they're arguing against that, and we'll probably hear from the campaign when they listen to this podcast about because I know they're always on you guys about you know reporting that stuff and 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 saying bad things about the campaign. But all the data seems to point in that direction. Now maybe they'll pull it off. Maybe there are all these people waiting to vote, 
who will change things. But to me, that's what's interesting about this. And I just think there's so many dynamics going in the Republicans' favor, including Biden's low approval rating, that it's hard to look at this and say, well, maybe we'll all be surprised. Of course, we always are ready for that. And if it happens, um, I think that makes it way more interesting for us and gives people a reason to listen to this podcast and find out what happened and what go to happened? our e-paper and find <laughs> out what happened. So um, maybe we'll get that, but it looks like maybe uh, that's a real long shot. I'll never forget an event that Democrats held here in Georgia right after Trump won. And it was headline WTF happened because <laughs> a lot of people were still kind of what is going on here. And you're right. I mean, that's why people come to the AJC, not just for the what, but the how and the why. Patricia, I mean, out on the campaign trail, we have noticed you led the jolt with the headline jittery Democrats. And and that's that's a perfect word to use because Democrats are very nervous right now. Here's some audio from a canvassing event I went to over the weekend where state rep Eric Allen predicted there's going to be um, some interesting turnout. But even even then, he wasn't making bold predictions that Democrats would sweep these offices. Not listen to what people are telling you about these polls and everything else. That's right. There are going to be some surprises on Tuesday night. And also, Patricia, we heard from State Senator Jen Jordan, the Democratic nominee for attorney general, talking about the mood of a lot of Democratic voters and Republicans she's hearing from. Now, I get a little freaked out because Republicans seem awfully confident. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of used to that at this point <laughs> because they always act like that. Right? So it's one of those things where it's, it's time for us to actually prove the wrong. So, Patricia, what do you make of that? So I think it is just incredible to think about where Democrats thought they were going to be on the day before Election Day of 2022 and where they are right now. So you have to look at somebody like Jen Jordan, who decided to come out of the state Senate to mount a statewide campaign as attorney general. Somebody like Eric Allen also came out of the state house to run himself statewide as well. He didn't end up winning his primary. But some of the very best and brightest that the Democrats have been electing at the local level, growing in these leadership positions, all decided to come out and run statewide in 2022. A big part of that was because they felt so good about 2020, the way that turned out for Democrats, 2021, the ground game that Democrats have managed to put together with Stacey Abrams' leadership in that way. And then also the thought that Abrams would also be running herself statewide. And so her decision to get into this race, the minute that she made that announcement publicly, you could feel Democrats around the state kind of be like, oh, yes, we've got this, you know, and things have just not panned out that way so far. Again, let's see what happens on Election Day. But the mood of Democrats the day that Abrams announced and uh, there was some real doubt whether or not she would run statewide again. But when she answered those questions, said she would be the top of the ticket guaranteed in people's minds that they would have the resources to run in this state, guaranteed they would have somebody at the top of the ticket who knows how to run a ground game. They felt so good. And now here we are. And it's just a very, very different tone from where um, where they were and certainly where they thought they were going to be. Patricia, just a question for you, because you're right. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, the Trump investigation, the January 6th stuff, the Democrats had to think, wow, this if this has ever been set up for us to keep this going... This is the election. And so at the top of the ticket, you know, we, everyone's tracked that very closely. It's particularly the center race is very close. A lot of talk about runoff or not. But what do you think about the fact that aside from the secretary of state, because of the unique role and sort of position Ra- uh, Secretary Raffensperger has found himself in, 
the numbers really haven't moved for like Jen Jordan in the in the attorney general's race. I mean, does that tell you something that those lower, you know, those down ticket races have not really seemed to shift at all that the Republicans are just as strong as it might feel at this moment? I think that that's a good indication of that. I think it's also an indication that Joe Biden's fortunes have not turned around in this state. It really feels like Joe Biden is a wet blanket just being laid out on top of every Democratic campaign in this state. And they just can't sort of like shake it off and get some air and make their own arguments about why they would be the right person to be running in these races. So because of the economy, because of inflation, voters are looking at their own situations Uh, Compared to two years ago, it's very easy to forget where we were two years ago with COVID and with lockdown measures and with people being worried about even having a job at this point. However, people still have their jobs. The state economy is still looking pretty good, but people's own pocketbooks are telling a different story. And so when voters look at that and look at who's in charge in Washington and Democrats did really throw some long passes and really did decide to spend a ton of money to keep the country from going going into sort of an immediate depression because of COVID. They made those leadership decisions, flooded money into the economy that has resulted in inflation, and it really has hurt people's pocketbooks. And so I think that Joe Biden's own performance, or at least the results of those decisions, are making it very, very hard for Democrats to make any advances from where they began their races. And Kevin, we're not seeing Democrats going out there and defending Joe Biden. Uh, Stacey Abrams is. She, to a degree, she is. But Senator Warnock, other candidates on the statewide ticket, down ticket Democrats, state lawmakers, we're not seeing them out there, not, or we're not seeing them leading their message with Joe Biden. We're not even seeing them talk about even the Inflation Reduction Act or the coronavirus relief funding that passed in early 2021. Um, some of those issues that we thought when we covered it, these will be big make or break moments in the campaign. They're just not. And even when Senator Warnock talks about federal legislation that would not have happened without him and John Ossoff's sweep of the 2021 runoffs, he talks about in the context of of issues that are kind of near and dear to Georgia voters, like trying to cap insulin prices at $35. He talks about that a lot more than he does the sweeping infrastructure measures and the hundreds of billions of dollars pumped into the economy and the like. And part of that's messaging. You know, that might be one of the reasons Democrats aren't there trying to defend Biden and his approval ratings are lower than 40% in the most recent AJC polls and other polls we've seen. And I talk to Democrats all the time who are frustrated with Joe Biden. And some of the frustrations are out of they're upset he didn't do more. He didn't codify Roe v. Wade when Democrats had complete control of Congress. And, you know, I, I kind of explained to them the filibuster rule. But, if, you know, if that message isn't getting across to very smart Democrats who are supporters of Joe Biden, then imagine, you know, middle of the road voters and certainly Republicans. And that's been the biggest issue, I think, is the Joe Biden uh, approval rating. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point. I'm just going to test a statement with both of you and then explain why I'm making it. See, I think one way to look at what's going on is whether the Democrats want to admit it or not, the Republicans absolutely control the narrative, period, full stop. And when you think about it, it, it's amazing because, like Patricia pointed out, I mean, two years ago really wasn't that great. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when, when Biden came into office, there was still a lot of worry, a lot of concern and a lot, a lot of negative things going on. You know, a lot of people were dead from the pandemic, all of that. And now, the, but the Republicans have been able to, you know, sort of tag and make it stick with Biden that he's responsible for the inflation. Well, I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, the gas prices is the favorite thing to talk about, right? 
Well, the president has nothing anything to do with gas prices. I mean, let's just be honest about it, you know. But it is the one thing that people are reminded of all day long, not just when they go fill up their tank, but they drive past filling, you know, gas stations all day long, and that price mm-hmm. looks high. And the Republicans have just pounded away at that. And the Democrats really haven't had a good counter to that at all. They really haven't found a way to say anything that would blunt that. And as I think you all would agree, I mean, the Republicans do tend to be much more disciplined about their message, and it it seems to be paying off. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, because when you think about um, who is telling the story of the last two years, it's really Brian Kemp. It's Brian Kemp saying, hey, the national economy has been struggling, but look what we've done here in Georgia. And even talk about gas prices. He can say, we have decided to suspend the gas tax. He just suspended the gas tax for another month on Friday. So he's had this month to month to month to month message point to say, hey, gas prices are high everywhere, but they're lower in Georgia because of me, because of Republican leadership the state. He's also spent the last two years rolling out economic development events and successes that the state has had that were frankly started years and years and years ago. But he is here and has been big, you know, has been a big part of uh, some of these successes as well. When he's able to talk about the Rivian plant opening east of Atlanta, able to talk about the Hyundai plant coming in in Savannah, those things are going to transform the economies of those areas. So he has been driving this economic message all day, every day. And I think you're so right. It has really felt like he has been controlling the narrative in this state. And with Senator Warnock in Washington, Ossoff in Washington, there has not been a major Democratic pushback, a coordinated pushback to say, but look at all these things that Joe Biden has been able to do. You just don't hear that. You don't hear that at the high level. You don't hear that at the low level. And so I think it has left this impression that it's the Republicans who are paying attention to the economy. And it's the Republicans who have the ability to turn the economy around as well. And two things I want to add there too, Kevin, is that Brian Kemp and Republicans have managed to stay on message, as Patricia mentioned. I mean, they've been disciplined. You ask Brian Kemp 50 times the same question about Donald Trump, he'll give you basically 50 near replicas of the same answer. And from the get-go, they decided this race is going to all be about the economy. And so you won't go to a campaign stop where he does not mention how he decided to lift economic restrictions early during the pandemic, even when he faced criticism from the national media and the local media. And look, I was one of the people who wrote all the stories about how this could be a turning point in Georgia. And there was a lot of fear and concern at that that moment. And he says, hey, you know, he attributes that to the reason why Georgia's coffers are overflowing right now. Of course, there's lots of other reasons, including federal cash that's been rolling in from from, uh, legislation that Republicans opposed. But the other thing, too, is that Stacey Abrams and other Democrats have had a number of disparate issues across the board, but it's hard to say, here's one thing, Stacey Abrams or Democrats, there's a lot of things they want to do, but it's hard to just say, what what is their core message? They want to roll back abortion limits. They want to roll back, you know, this gun expansions. They want to expand Medicaid, which is the message that Stacey Abrams opened with and has continued to pummel away at. Legalize gambling, give teachers pay raises. There's all these policies, which of course energize her liberal supporters, but also give Republicans a lot more to be energized and mobilized about as well, because you're not talking about one or two big changes. You're talking about many fundamental changes, what what Stacey Abrams calls generational changes. And again, while it's helped her mobilize her supporters, it also probably helped mobilize Republicans against her. 
I had actually a quick question for Kevin. Um, Kevin, when we're talking about sort of the role of national politics versus local politics, because you came out of Ohio, which is sort of like the ultimate swing state, and I do feel like the national headwinds played a big role in how Ohio has gone. What do you think about the role of Donald Trump in this campaign? Because you'd mentioned Raffensperger. What do you think those feuds with Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger has done to both their chances? Do you think that had an effect on where they find themselves right now? And what has that done to Republicans sort of statewide, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to know for sure, of course, but here, I would say a couple things, right? Um, I think they have found a way to stay above that fray and not look like they're going to get into a mudslinging, uh, you know, lowbrow battle with an antagonist like Trump. Um, and they found a way to do that. And then the other thing is they found a way to leverage what I think is at the core of Trump's appeal, which is average people's frustration with how government, how politicians, how things work, right? Because, I mean, when you think about it, the reason Biden's uh, ratings seem to be low is there's sort of this sentiment of like, I'm frustrated by interest rates and inflation and gas prices. I'm going to throw someone out. I mean, we need to throw the bums out, you know, that old that old way of thinking. And common, you know, because those kitchen table issues, right? And somehow Kemp in particular has found a way to not be blamed for any of that because he didn't take any, any of the bait from Trump. And I do really think, I mean, that's why I believe, you know, you talk about Ohio State, being a swing state, but it's really there are a lot of questions about it. You know the way Trump carried it in the last in the last election, and I just think that that is a state more full of frustration than Georgia. You know that is a state that, you know, during my time there, we we were they were shutting down auto plants, not opening them the way they are in Georgia, right? And there are a lot of people left behind, a lot of people who resent the fact that the way America is supposed to work isn't working that way for them. Right. And I think that that leads, you know, because people have so few ways to act on their frustration. I mean, they can feel very helpless. And one of the things they can do is go in a voting booth and vote against someone or against something to make their point. And I think that Kemp has found a way to say a vote for me is a vote against Joe Biden. Right. And he don't think about Donald Trump. Think about Joe Biden. That's what he's been able to do. And certainly that is the argument that Herschel Walker has in the Senate race as well, that a vote for him would be a vote for Republican control of the U.S. Senate. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from each of us about the big thing they're watching on Election Day. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. 
And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're two of the political insiders at the AJC. We're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community now, this very moment, by going to subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, we've said this for a while, but it feels like these days, even like the fifth or sixth item in the jolt could easily be the lead item because there's so much we packed in there, so much so that we even added a campaign notebook to get all the other stuff that would normally go into a jolt in a different sort of uh, a story venue so we can get even more of what's happening on the campaign trail out there to our audience. Yes, we know that we have an audience of fellow political obsessives, and our goal is that you will never go hungry during campaign season. (laughs) We will feed you breakfast, lunch, dinner, politics. Don't worry, it's coming. And uh, yes, today is no exception. Even if we barely have time to eat ourselves. <laughs> well, um, even on the, uh, you know, we this past weekend, we had our other Jolt colleague, Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. She was in Savannah and in middle Georgia. Patricia, I know you were on the campaign trail. I took advantage of a Herschel Walker stop in Athens to catch his event, write a couple stories, and, and maybe one of the Bulldogs beat Tennessee. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> You sure did. I was telling my husband this morning, I'm like, you know what? If there was a World Series game, Greg would have managed to fly to that, go to the game, write some political story about it, be back in Athens for the Tennessee game, write a political story about that and call it all work. Well, remember last year. I watched the game and uh, I wondered if I spotted Greg in like red and black body paint in the stands. (laughs) He was the one weeping with joy. He he can't be there. He's working. I was wearing my very faded Greg Blue jersey. He was a he was a player back in my day. Amazing. And number seventeen, but the Wait, number from seven, Georgia. There was yeah, a real yeah. player Greg named Blue. Greg Blue. Amazing. We do not, we do not look alike, <laughs> but um, he, he was number seventeen. And the seven on my jersey that I've had this for twenty years is completely faded off. The the letters are peeling off. Everyone was giving me grief about it, but the people who recognize were like Greg Blue. Um, and I'm actually friends with Greg on a. On Facebook. So I, I sent him a picture and he goes, you know what, Bluestein, I'm about to get a new batch of jerseys, like real jerseys. I'm going to send Ooh. you one. So fingers crossed. My friends wow. won't have, <laughs> they can't give me so much grief for wearing this 20 year old jersey too much, more <laughs> long, too much longer. Okay. So beyond being on the campaign trail, now we get to shift from campaign trail coverage to like what is actually happening. We know 2.5 million people plus have already voted. More than a million more will vote on election day. It's hard to read into these early day figures, but we're going to soon find out. Kevin, what's the biggest thing you're watching on election day? Well, uh, I'll tell you, but I want to do one thing before that. And that is on the podcast that, you know, uh, as the man in charge of the AJC, thank both of you and Tia and others for all the hard work. I mean, I am a devoted listener. Uh, you guys have been working around the clock. I think the people who listen to this know that, but I want to thank you because we're extremely proud of what you've done. And all of the, any insight I have, I really gained from reading your stuff, listening to this podcast and chatting with the two of you whenever I can get away with it. And uh, Trish, I want you to know that I actually have some laundry in right now in <laughs> honor of you. I felt like if I was really going to come through on this podcast, I needed to do that. So um, so here's what I'm watching. And this is, it really is a result of a lot of the work uh, Patricia's done is I'm just personally curious 
and want to pay attention to how the abortion issue plays out, not just in Georgia, but across the country. And I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, again, we thought it was going to be a really, really big deal. And it turns out that in every poll, you know, it's, it's a distant second at best to the economy, right? But the way that polls are done, people are asked, what is the most important issue, right? So we know that the economy is number one. I keep wondering is what if abortion is number two for almost everybody else or half the voters or something like that? So I'm really curious to see if it plays out, if uh, women who are particularly concerned about the issue or interested in the issue or want to make a statement about the issue are just kind of being quiet about it, and then it will show up in the polls, I, I, in, the, in the ultimate vote. I just don't know, but I am curious about how that plays out and something I'm looking forward to finding out, like, how does it show up? nationwide? Does it show up in Georgia? Patricia, any thoughts on that subject? Because as Kevin mentioned, you've written 40 columns (laughs) because it's such an important issue. And as Kevin mentioned, it might not be the determining factor. It might not be the paramount concern for so many voters, but it's the number two issue for for a lot of voters as well. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And I'll definitely be doing exactly what Kevin is doing, looking to see how the abortion issue plays out. There are several states on Tuesday who are holding specific ballot initiatives on abortion. And that's a chance for voters to say, this is exactly how I feel about this issue and how this state handles it going forward. Georgia is not one of those states. So there's no way to know exactly how Georgia voters feel about abortion as an individual issue beyond our own poll because we know it's going into this balance of issues that they are considering when they look at these two candidates side by side. I've talked to so many voters who are concerned about both the economy and abortion. Where does where does this election leave those voters? And just as important, what does that do to abortion policy going forward? Does it leave it where it is right now? Or does it tell politicians who are campaigning in the future, you know what, this isn't actually that big of a deal. It's not going to be the make or break issue. So you can campaign accordingly. I think that's a really precarious position for that issue to be in. But it is also um, what elections like this are when elected officials and candidates are going to take their cues from this and say, if I campaign this way, this is how I will or will not be elected. And that that is a hugely important dynamic in this election. I'll definitely be looking for that. Um, more granularly, I'll be looking on election night itself, exactly how Governor Brian Kemp fares. Not only does he clear 50%, if he clears 50%, but by how much and what does that do to the rest of the Republican ticket and what does that do to the Democratic ticket? Obviously, as we mentioned, there's hope among Republicans that uh, Governor Kemp can finish by such a wide margin that that can pull Herschel Walker across the finish line in the process. If he has a big night, we're also going to look down in the second congressional district, how that race turns out. It's Georgia's only really competitive house race. Is that a close race as well? We'll be looking to see uh, Republicans just decided not to spend any money down there. Their national campaigns really did not invest in that area. If it ends up being a close election, could money have swayed that one way or another? Democrats have plowed more than a million dollars into that race. And that's how we know that they think it's competitive as well. So I'll be looking at the margins on both of those two races. And Republicans are very optimistic about their get out the vote machine, their grassroots machine, which they've been building since 
for, for years now, Governor Kemp has plowed in millions of dollars to um, to build that out in the hopes that two will help the rest of the ticket. And, and Patricia, as you said, four years ago, Governor Kemp had that narrow victory, and he feels like he was denied, you know, a convincing win. He had an asterisk attached to his name in Democratic press releases. There was that 10 days of purgatory in, ended by Stacey Abrams' non-concession speech. If he has the mandate, if he has the victory he, he that polls at least indicate he could have, he'll have a mandate. But if you look back at his four years, most of what he said he would accomplish, he's accomplished in terms of expanding gun rights and the toughest abortion restrictions, all these, all these different measures, teacher pay raises, things that meant to energize conservatives and meant to uh, kind of throw a bone to the independent voters. He's done those things. We don't know much about what he'd do in his second term because he has issued very few second term policies. He'd rather run on a first term record than a second term policy platform. So there's a big question mark about what a mandate would mean for Governor Kemp. What I'm looking for the most is something we've talked about a lot, but it's still a trend out there is split ticket voters. We see in poll after poll after poll, three, four, five, six percent of voters who are backing Governor Kemp are also signaling they're supporting either Raphael Warnock, the Libertarian, or they're just skipping out on the Senate race. And that could be the difference between a runoff in December or a outright victory for either one of these candidates. And, you know, closer to the election, those voters tend to sort of go home. And when it's posed to them, hey, would you rather have a Democratic control of the U.S. Senate or Herschel Walker in that Senate, you know, the rubber meets the road and they have to make those decisions. But that's one of the big elements I've been watching really since, since even before Herschel Walker won the primary. Kevin? You know, I have one other thing I just have to confess to you guys. I'm going to be, be watching and I may regret doing this, but you know, I'm watching the Dr. Oz Grace very yeah, closely. Yes. And uh, that's because, as, as I've told you both, I have been on Dr. Oz's show <laughs> I'm not going to get into that because you'll, you know, I'm hoping that leads me to being invited back to the podcast someday. But I really want to see uh, how that race comes out so that that story of being on his show can be something I, I might uh, tell for, you know, many years to come. Well, we're, we're going to put a pin in that one so that after the election, no matter what happens, we can our listeners can listen to that one. But look, we there will be a lot of indicators, not just in Georgia. I always watch Baldwin County. We always watch, of course, DeKalb County, Fulton County re- results. We watch Kemp heavy territory. We've seen a, a tremendous turnout already in Oconee County, in Greene County, in areas around Kemp's biggest base of support. Um, so we'll be watching that on a really granular level. We also should expect results quicker. I don't want to jinx anything here, but lawmakers as part of the SB202, the controversial election overhaul that was signed into law last year, also mandated that a quicker vote count. And so hopefully we won't be waiting days and days and days. It still could be a while in close races, but we should have results quicker than usual, Patricia. So that that should really help our own sanity and really help fight some of these false conspiracy theories that sprung up in 2020 about a vote count that is always taking a long time in Georgia. 
Yes, we've also seen a huge, huge voter turnout early in person. And so it'll be really interesting to see, does that high turnout continue on Election Day? Or have we simply shifted voters from Election Day to early in-person voting? And that'll be a big thing we're watching. It'll also have a lot to say whether or not those counties can actually meet that mandate. Can they get those ballots turned around fast enough? Uh, The legislature said, have them in by midnight. And in some cases, the counties have not always been able to meet that deadline, but they certainly do know that it's a goal and uh, something that they should be working toward. But if there's a gigantic turnout on Election Day, as there has been in early in-person voting, the counties warned the lawmakers while this bill was being debated, listen, that is almost impossible to do. So we'll have to see who was right when they were having that discussion during the debate. So I have to ask both of you, where are you going to be on election night if I want to come hang out with you? I have two places I'm planning to be. I'm going to start at Kemp headquarters and then head over to Herschel Walker headquarters. But they're pretty close to each other. So I think that I can actually do both. Um, I think I can do both without too much trouble. What do you think, Greg? What are you doing? Well, I'll be at Governor Kemp's as well. And if there's a call earlier in the night, I'll join you at Herschel Walker's. And if not, I'll stay at Governor Kemp's. But as Kevin knows, and I'd love to give our listeners a, a peek behind the curtains because we have an elaborate election night plan, election day plan, weeks leading up to election plan with literally dozens of stories. We have all sorts of prep stories ready for any outcome that, of course, will update and adapt with whatever happens. But we'll have reporters with Stacey Abrams, with Senator Warnock. We'll have reporters at Fulton County ballot counting area stations um, because of, of the flashpoints that has caused. We'll have Mark Nisi, our voting expert, kind of on the ground, wherever he's needed, whether it be press conferences, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, or different hotspots around the state. And we have a team of local reporters who are just going to be everywhere, you know, covering local races, covering legislative races, covering the down ticket races. So we're going to have just a torrent of coverage. And we'll be on the ground too. We'll be doing a special episode of the podcast after the election results to talk about WTF happened. (laughs) Well, the other thing, the other thing I would mention is um, reminding everyone who listens to this to not limit themselves to the printed newspaper because our website will be active all night. You've just mentioned they'll get a podcast following our e-paper. We'll put out editions of the e-paper as the day goes on, as results become clearer. So if you haven't, activated your digital subscription to the AJC, which comes with your print edition subscription, now's the time because this there's nothing like election night and really following things online. I'll probably just be at the office and which won't be super exciting um, like you guys, but just trying to keep track of things. So someone needs to be in charge. (laughs) Someone (laughs) needs to be in charge. (laughs) Uh, You know, Kevin, before we get out of here, you mentioned this story about a really tough call that you watched a publisher make uh, when it came to an election result. Can you talk about that? Was that 2000? Yeah, that was during my days in Ohio, the 2000, uh, the 2000 election that, but you know, listeners will recall that was the George W. Bush and the Al Gore race where first Gore won, we thought, and then Bush thought, then Bush won, we thought, and then it went on and on. And uh, just, uh, you know, in the newsroom watching the, our publisher, get on the phone and call our production facility and order papers destroyed, you know, and order <gasps> trucks to wait, you know. And myself, just knowing, wow, I mean, I had done a lot of work with our production departments early in my career, and I knew that each one of those uh, instructions was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in newsprint, sure. ink, plates, uh, overtime pay. And uh, just he was just determined to make sure 
And I do really do think this is part of our culture working for the company we work for because uh, it was Cox that owned the paper I worked for in Ohio where it's really crucial to get things right and, and just try to do the right thing. And um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a night. And I'll just remember the confidence with which he made those calls. It has always, you know, stuck with me. And it taught me, too, that when you're the editor of the paper, you do have to try to stay above it all as best you can because it's, it's someone's got to – we may have to make a call like that, right, about what to do and, and where the election's ending up. And uh, Bluestein and Murphy are out there on their, you know, on a terror, but it's hard for them to you know, see the big picture as they chase the governor or a senator-elect around or, or something. So that'll be my job, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, uh, looking forward to – enjoying the terrific work that the two of you do. So, Oh, no pressure <laughs> when you put it like that for your situation <laughs> on Tuesday night. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Uh, thanks, as always, to co-host Patricia Murphy. We are all, uh, we're all going crazy right now, but we can't wait for election night and whatever happens afterwards. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We've had about seven of those episodes this week alone. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.